These are the Greek Myth Files, your entree into the world of Greek myth in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. In this episode, we will finish our series on myth and diseases by considering their origins in several mythical stories. We have already encountered those that originate with Apollo, but the Greeks had other stories about the origins of human suffering, including some that directly confronted how diseases arose. Before we look at those stories, however, I'd like to take a small step backwards and consider the strained relationship between mortals and the gods, and to look briefly at some myths told elsewhere, myths which are quite similar to those of the Greeks, but which predate them by centuries, or perhaps even by a millennium. And finally, we'll look at a very few myths in which the Greek heroes fall ill and even die from disease. One of the central beliefs of the Greeks was that human life was not naturally destined for happy fulfillment. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Being human meant suffering and always trying to overcome the hardships that continually threaten humans in their frailty. Unlike the gods, we mortals are subject to death, and until that time we face a life of toil and torment. The gods, in turn, were, in the best of times, uninterested in us mortals and, at the worst of times, actively causing our suffering and engineering our deaths. To the deathless gods, humans were simply creatures of a day, meaningless objects passing our lives virtually unnoticed like the flies that go buzzing past us today. In other words, humans were ephemeroi, the Greek word for things that live but a single day, and it's the origin of our English word ephemeral or fleeting. Because of this, the gods have little reason to think that we deserve their attention, and they certainly don't feel beholden to protect us. But we'll come back to that in just a little bit. Now, the Greeks were not alone in thinking that human existence was equivalent to toil and suffering. In a text from the area known as Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates River, and written about 3,800 years ago, we find just such a situation. The work, which predates our earliest Greek poems by about a thousand years, and was originally composed in Akkadian, is called the Atrahasis, after the main character, whose name means something like super wise. The work is fascinating and worth reading, despite the fact that it's pretty challenging, because it is preserved in different versions and fragmentary in places. Anyways, at the beginning of the Atrahasis, the gods themselves are said to be, quote, like humans, because they themselves had to work hard, digging the channels for the great rivers Tigris and Euphrates. For countless years, the greater gods forced these lesser gods to do hard manual labor. And of course, eventually, they got fed up with all the toil, so these gods devised a plan to make their lives easy once and for all. They sacrificed one of their own, mixed his blood and flesh into clay, and created us humans, whose sole job was to do the hard manual labor so the gods did not have to. Now, all seemed well and good until, years later, humans had reproduced to the point that, as the text tells us, they became too numerous and extremely noisy. This in turn caused Enlil, the storm god and mightiest of all the gods, to lose sleep. Although it's not exactly made explicit in the text, it seems that when the gods created humans, they had not thought about making them mortal or subject to death somehow. And because of this failure to plan appropriately, the human population grew so large that the gods would not be able to live in peace. So Enlil came up with successive attempts at population control. 
The first method involved was what the text calls the shirupu disease, which is the Akkadian word for shiver, invoking the idea of a flu-like virus that caused chills, fever, and shuddering. Because there was another god who was secretly helping humans, this didn't entirely work, so Enlil had to send other disasters, famine followed by a massive flood. The title character Atrahasis Superwise, however, because of insider information from Enki, that god who was protecting humans, survived the flood. And eventually, the gods decided on a less violent and catastrophic method of population control, that is, natural death of old age, and, in some cases, and even more grisly, infant mortality. Greek myth, of course, also features a giant flood sent by the gods and aimed at devastating the world's population. But we'll save a detailed look at the flood for another episode. It's a big topic. But the Greek poets also told stories about the gods' attempts to reduce human population by other means as well, including warfare. In fact, we have glimpses of stories that suggested that the wars at Thebes and at Troy were both planned by the gods to reduce human population on Earth. We don't quite have the full story, and the original poem doesn't exist anymore, but a later writer seems to have captured the basic points. They say that the earth was being burdened by the mass of humanity, and there was no piety among humans. And so Gaia, the earth, asked Zeus to lighten her load. Zeus immediately acted, first creating the Theban War, destroying a lot of people. Later, following his counselor Momus, which is the plan of Zeus Homer is talking about, Although he was able to destroy everything with thunderbolts or floods, Momus stopped him, advising him two courses of action, marrying Thetis off to a mortal and generating a beautiful daughter, both of whom will cause a war between the Greeks and barbarians. And this is how it happened that the earth was lightened, by killing off a bunch of people. The story is in Stasinus, the author of the Cypria. In both the Atrahasis and the myths we've discussed in earlier episodes, diseases and plagues are sent by the gods and, generally speaking, are not random forces in the natural world. You may recall from our first episode that the plague that starts the Iliad was the result of Apollo's anger over the Greeks' mistreatment of his priest. Other gods, too, can be said to cause a plague. One such example can be found in the seventh book of Ovid's Metamorphoses, where it is the goddess Juno, Greek Hera, who causes a massive and horrific plague on the island of Aegina that wipes out all the followers of King Aeacus. The story is told as a flashback when the Athenian hero Cephalus comes to the island of Aegina to recruit allies for a war against the invading King Minos, and he's surprised by all the new faces he sees. So he decides to ask Aeacus the reason why he does not see his old friends. And the king responds, A fearful plague came down among the people, brought on when cruel Juno's anger turned against the land that bore her rival's name. While we were ignorant of what had caused it, and while it appeared to us to be a natural disaster, it was fought with all the arts of medicine, and still it vanquished all of our stratagems. Aeacus goes on to describe the pestilential heat that poisoned the air, the pools, the animals, and last of all, his people. 
As Ovid describes it, even the doctors fell dead when their attempts to heal only served to infect them. Juno, of course, had a pretty good reason to be angry. Her husband Jupiter, that's Zeus, of course, had abducted a young woman named Aegina, taken her to this island, slept with her, and fathered Aeacus, the king who tells the story to Cephalus. To make matters even worse for Juno, the island takes on the name Aegina, eternally reminding her of her husband's infidelity. But now that all of his people in Aegina had died, what was King Aeacus to do? Well, he prayed to Zeus, his father, and while doing so, he caught sight of a colony of ants that were kind of scattering beneath an oak tree. So he said, and I quote, O father, give me just as many new people to fill up my lifeless city. And that night, in a dream, Aeacus saw the ants become larger, take on human features, and grow into people. When he awoke, he thought it was just that, a dream. But then his son burst into the room and reported the miracle. And outside, Aeacus found a whole new band of followers. These men they called the Myrmidons, or Antmen, after the Greek word Myrmex for ant. Now, the son of King Aeacus was Peleus. And Peleus' son was Achilles, the greatest Greek fighter and leader of the Myrmidons in the Trojan War. Achilles' story, or at least part of the story, is told in the greatest work ever created, the Iliad. Now, I'm biased, of course, but that epic really does drive home human frailty and suffering in a very visceral way, mainly through a series of very human decisions that lead to loss and sadness. Achilles' refusal to help the Greeks after being slighted by King Agamemnon and then his doubling down on his anger after the king attempts to reconcile, leads to the death of Achilles' best friend, and ultimately to his own death in Troy. But the Iliad does not narrate Achilles' death, choosing instead to end, and brilliantly I might add, with a conversation between old King Priam, whose son Achilles had just killed, and young Achilles, who will never see his father Peleus again, since he is destined to die in Troy. In this conversation, each finds in the other a surrogate of what each has lost, and they spend a moment not as enemies, but as fellow humans engulfed in the deepest of sorrows. When that moment passes, Achilles asks Priam to sit, reminding the old man that suffering is an unavoidable part of being human. Come then, sit down on this chair, and let's allow our distress to lie at rest in our hearts for all our grieving. For no profit accrues from numbing lamentation. That's how the gods spun life's threat for unhappy mortals, to live amid sorrow while they themselves are uncaring. There are two great jars sunk down in the floor of Zeus's abode, full of gifts he hands out, one of ills, the other of blessings. And the man who gets a mixed handout from thundering Zeus will sometimes encounter trouble and sometimes good luck. But when Zeus dispenses gifts from the jar of sorrows only, he makes a man an outcast. Brutal, ravenous hunger drives him down the face of the shining earth, stalking far and wide, cursed by the gods and men. Here again we encounter a god, Zeus, as the distributor of ills and suffering pulling out handfuls from his jar of woe. And Achilles goes on to point out that even his father, Peleus, who was a thriving king and once had a goddess as a wife, had evils and disaster piled on him from Zeus. In other words, 
Not even a mortal who seems to have everything was exempt from suffering. But since this is a series on disease and dying, we may wonder, where did disease and illness come from in the first place? To get started on this question, we'll turn to another early author, Hesiod, who wrote two important poems that had origin myths at their core. One of these is called the Theogony, which describes the creation of the world and the emergence of the Olympian gods through a series of births. That's where the word Theogony comes from in the first place, which literally means birth of the gods. In it, the world, the heavens, the seas, mountains, Zeus, you name it, were all generated by a series of reproductions. But the poem covers the origins not only of tangible things like mountains and sky, but also abstract forces as well. And in one section of the poem, we encounter the children and descendants of the goddess Night, all of which are things that cause human suffering, deception, destructive old age, conflict, hard labor, famine, sorrows, and war, lawlessness, and ruin. But there's no mention of disease. For that, we will have to turn to the other poem of Hesiod, The Works and Days. The Works and Days is a rich source for ideas about the origin of human suffering. And in it, there are several stories told that are reminders of what the Greeks already knew deep inside. Human life was brutally tough. Not all the stories are consistent with each other, as one might expect of a poet drawing on what was probably a series of oral traditions and stitching them together in one poem. But the main point is clear. The gods have contrived to make our lives miserable. As Hesiod puts it early in the poem, The gods keep livelihood hidden from men. Otherwise a day's labor could bring a man enough to last a whole year with no more work. The reasons for this we'll save for a future episode. But basically the overall cause of this was the god Prometheus who not only created the friction between gods and men in the first place, but also then chose to champion the human cause by stealing fire and giving it back to men. Now, enlightened listeners may be wondering whether I'm using the word men in the old-fashioned and outdated way to refer to humankind that you'll find in older translations of the Bible and other ancient texts. No, I am not. When I say men, I mean males, and that's because women had not yet been invented. And the reason for their invention? to punish men for Prometheus's crimes. We could spend an entire season on the dim view Greek males had of women. You got a small taste of it in our last episode, and we will come back to this in future episodes as well. But for now, we will focus on what might be called womankind's original sin. Here's the story. When Zeus wanted to punish men for Prometheus's offenses against him, he ordered the gods to mix earth and water together and give that mixture a voice and all other gifts. That creature was to be named Pandora, after all, Pan, of the gifts Dora she received. Among the gifts, however, was a devilish and mischievous mind, aimed at bringing doom to mortal men, males. Once created, Pandora was pawned off in marriage to Prometheus's brother Epimetheus, who famously did not see the disaster coming, even though he had been warned by his brother Prometheus. Once in Epimetheus's possession, Pandora set to work, releasing suffering and diseases into the world. Earlier, human tribes lived on this earth without suffering and toilsome hardship, and without painful illnesses that bring death to men. 
But the woman with her hands removed the great lid of the jar and scattered its contents, bringing grief and cares to men. These wander among men as numberless sorrows, since earth and sea teem with miseries. Some diseases come upon men during the day, and some roam about and bring pains to men in the silence of night, because Zeus, the counselor, made them mute. We are not told where this large jar of evils came from, or who owned it, or whether or not this is the same jar as the one in Zeus's dwelling on Olympus or not. But the important point here is that Pandora, the woman snare created by the gods, is the source of all human suffering. But even more important, I think, is the fact that the diseases released by Pandora are not individualized plagues sent by a god in response to a specific wicked act, like we found at the beginning of the Iliad, or Hera's angry plague in reaction to Zeus's infidelities. Instead, these diseases are free agents that roam around the world and can strike at random, seemingly without reason. In fact, that's the whole point. The gods allow them to float freely over the earth in silence, lurking stealthily and ready to strike when we least expect it. If this sounds a bit like the Atrahasis to you, that's probably not an accident. Hesiod almost certainly drew on the stories of earlier cultures to the east of Greece and adapted them for a Greek audience. One of the hotly debated questions in scholarship is the degree to which the Greeks owed a debt to other cultures for their rich mythological tradition, and the emerging answer seems to be quite a lot. At any rate, you'll remember that Prometheus, now Pandora's brother-in-law, served as a defender of humans. In the play Prometheus Bound, which centers on Prometheus's punishment and is a fine study in the cruelty of a new ruler like Zeus, Prometheus talks about how he helped mortals deal with the challenges they faced. One of these challenges was diseases, for which humans had no defense. My greatest accomplishment was this. When a mortal became sick, there was no defense, neither in healing food, nor drink, nor ointment. For lack of drugs, they wasted, until I showed them how to mix simple remedies so that they could drive away all kinds of illness. Here we meet that word pharmaca again, and if you recall from our second episode, this almost always meant some kind of herbal remedy. But here it is not Chiron or Asclepius who invents remedies for human ailments, but Prometheus himself. This is due, at least in part, to the poet's characterization of Prometheus, who is described as being solely responsible for coming up with ways for humans to protect themselves against all the evils of the universe sent by other gods. And it's quite likely that the poet modeled Prometheus on the Akkadian god Enki, who had helped Atrahasis survive all of the plagues sent by Enlil. However that may be, one thing remains certain. Being human means the world is out to get you. All of this thinking about disease and its origins got me thinking about myths in which Greek heroes get sick without warning or without the gods explicitly taking a part in it. In my admittedly brief search, I was able to come up with only two. The first was the hero Tiphys, son of Hognios, who took part in the Argonaut adventure and was the helmsman or captain of the ship Argo. On their way to Colchis, the Argonauts stopped on the southern coast of the Black Sea where they were entertained and they resupplied their ship. 
On the way back to the ship, another Argonaut named Idmon, son of Abbas, was killed after being gored by a wild boar hiding in the reeds. For those of you who have not read a lot of Greek myth, being attacked by a boar is a quite common experience. At any rate, as Apollonius of Rhodes, poet of the Argonautica, tells us, it was at this point that Typhus succumbs to disease. We are not told exactly what happened, but the disease was swift and deadly. The other case of a hero contracting a disease involves the greatest of them all, Heracles, who is twice said to fall ill. We'll leave aside the first time where the word for illness, nosos, could mean a fit of insanity. The second instance was when Heracles decided to march against King Augeas, a Greek who had failed to pay him for cleaning out his super disgusting stables. After having mustered a large force of volunteers to help him, Heracles set out from Arcadia to the east to meet the king and his double-bodied general or generals, the powerful duo known as the Molionidae. On the way, Heracles fell sick, so he sent a herald to strike a truce, which the Molionidae quickly agreed to. Nobody wants to tangle with a healthy Heracles. That is, until they learned the real reason for the truce, that the great Heracles was sick. Knowing the truth, they struck and killed many of Heracles' men, and they had to beat a retreat. For those of you who are rooting for Heracles, he later gets his revenge when he ambushes and kills the Molionidae at a religious festival, after which he proceeded then to march and sack Algeus' city for good measure. Perhaps listeners can help me find and identify other Greek heroes who fall sick from an unidentified illness. And I'm always interested to hear from you, whether it is with questions or other feedback about our podcast. Join me at Professor R. Scott Smith on Instagram and Facebook, or Greek Mythmaster, that's at GRK Mythmaster, all one word, on Twitter. Great thanks go to A.J. O'Neill and Julia Summer, our voice actors, as well as to our fabulous sound engineer, Samantha Kutsia. As always, our theme music is Brooklyn Tea by the saxophonist extraordinaire Jared Sims. That's Sims with one M. You should go listen to and buy his music. This has been the Greek Myth Files, signing off for just a little while. We'll see you next time.